The young have aspirations that never come to pass. The old have reminiscences of what never happened. It's only the middle-aged who are really conscious of their limitations. That is why one should be patient with them. But one never is. Hector Hugh Munro, aka Saki. It's like these quotes have advice beyond our years, except this one has the same message as our last story. Hi there, and welcome to a farm fresh episode of Folksy, the Storytime Podcast. I'm your host, Ishan Wadwa, aka Iser. Today's author doesn't need an introduction to any fan of short fiction, though we'll try. Hector Hugh Munro, better known by his pen name Saki, is a contemporary of O. Henry, inspired by Oscar Wilde and inspiration to A.A. Milne. <laughs> That's a veritable who's who of the literary world right there. He's well regarded for his satirical bend and sometimes macabre style of prose. Let's go check out an example of his exceptional writing style then. Our story of the day is called The Reticence of Lady Anne from the collection Reginald in Russia. Egbert came into the large, dimly lit drawing room with the air of a man who is not certain whether he is entering a dovecote or a bomb factory and is prepared for either eventuality. The little domestic quarrel over the luncheon table had not been fought to a definite finish and the question was how far Lady Anne was in a mood to renew or forego hostilities. Her pose in the armchair by the tea table was rather elaborately rigid. In the gloom of a December afternoon, Egbert's pince-nez did not materially help him to discern the expression of her face. By way of breaking whatever ice might be floating on the surface, he made a remark about a dim religious light. He or Lady Anne were accustomed to make that remark between 4.30 and 6 on winter and late autumn evenings. It was a part of their married life. There was no recognized rejoinder to it, and Lady Anne made none. Don Tarquinio lay a stretch on the Persian rug, basking in the firelight with superb indifference to the possible ill humor of Lady Anne. His pedigree was as flawlessly Persian as the rug, and his ruff was coming into the glory of its second winter. The page boy, who had renaissance tendencies, had christened him Don Tarquinio. Left to themselves, Egbert and Lady Anne would unfailingly have called him Fluff. But they were not obstinate. Egbert poured himself out some tea. As the silence gave no sign of breaking on Lady Anne's initiative, he braced himself for another Yermak effort. My remark at lunch had a purely academic application, he announced. You seem to put an unnecessarily personal significance into it. Lady Anne maintained her defensive barrier of silence. The bullfinch lazily filled in the interval with an air from Iffini de Torid. Egbert recognized it immediately 
because it was the only air the bullfinch whistled, and he had come to them with a reputation for whistling it. Both Egbert and Lady Anne would have preferred something from the Yeomen of the Guard, which was their favorite opera. In matters artistic, they had a similarity of taste. They leaned towards the honest and explicit in art, a picture, for instance, that told its own story with generous assistance from its title. A riderless warhorse with harness in obvious disarray, staggering into a courtyard full of pale swooning women and marginally noted bad news, suggested to their minds a distinct interpretation of some military catastrophe. They could see what it was meant to convey and explain it to friends of duller intelligence. The silence continued. As a rule, Lady Anne's displeasure became articulate and markedly voluble after four minutes of introductory muteness. Egbert seized the milk jug and poured some of its contents into Don Tarquinio's saucer. As the saucer was already full to the brim, an unsightly overflow was the result. Don Tarquinio looked on with a surprised interest that evanesced into elaborate unconsciousness when he was appealed to by Egbert to come and drink up some of the spilt matter. Don Tarquinio was prepared to play many roles in life, but a vacuum carpet cleaner was not one of them. Don't you think we're being rather foolish? said Egbert cheerfully. If Lady Anne thought so, she didn't say so. I dare say the fault has been partly on my side, continued Egbert with evaporating cheerfulness. After all, I'm only human, you know. You seem to forget that I'm only human. He insisted on the point, as if there had been unfounded suggestions that he was built on satire lines, with goat continuations where the human left off. The bullfinch recommenced its air from Ifigni de Torid. Egbert began to feel depressed. Lady Anne was not drinking her tea. Perhaps she was feeling unwell. But when Lady Anne felt unwell, she was not wont to be reticent on the subject. No one knows what I suffer from indigestion, was one of her favorite statements. But the lack of knowledge can only have been caused by defective listening. The amount of information available on the subject would have supplied material for a monograph. Evidently, Lady Anne was not feeling unwell. Egbert began to think he was being unreasonably dealt with. Naturally, he began to make concessions. I dare say, he observed, taking as central a position on the hearthrug as Don Tarquinio could be persuaded to concede him, I may have been to blame. I am willing, if I can thereby restore things to a happier standpoint, to undertake to lead a better life. He wondered vaguely how it would be possible. Temptations came to him in middle age, tentatively and without insistence 
like a neglected butcher boy who asks for a Christmas box in February for no more hopeful reason that than he didn't get one in December. He had no more idea of succumbing to them that he had of purchasing the fish knives and furboas that ladies are impelled to sacrifice through the medium of advertisement columns during 12 months of the year. Still, there was something impressive in this unasked-for renunciation of possibly latent enormities. Lady Anne showed no sign of being impressed. Egbert looked at her nervously through his glasses. To get the worst of an argument with her was no new experience. To get the worst of a monologue was a humiliating novelty. I shall go dress for dinner, he announced in a voice into which he intended some shade of sternness to creep. At the door, a final access of weakness impelled him to make a further appeal. Aren't we being very silly? A fool was Don Tarquinio's mental comment as the door closed on Egbert's retreat. Then he lifted his velvet forepaws in the air and leapt lightly onto a bookshelf immediately under the bullfinch's cage. It was the first time he had seemed to notice the bird's existence, but he was carrying out a long-form theory of action with the precision of mature deliberation. The bullfinch, who had fancied himself something of a despot, depressed himself into a sudden, into a third of his normal displacement. Then he fell to a helpless wing-beating and shrill cheeping. He had cost 27 shillings without the cage, but Lady Anne made no sign of interfering. She had been dead for two hours. And that was our story of the day. <laughs> okay, through the amount of humor that Saki injected into the early part of the story, in fact, the entire story, through his subtlety of word use as well as sentence construction, I was beginning to think that this was one of his funnier stories, you know? No macabre humor altogether, all just lighthearted and familial stuff. And then that last line. God damn, that was masterful. And even though I'd like to know more about the background of this particular story, like, you know, something more about the characters maybe, that's not because there was something left missing in the story itself. It's because the characters, even with the lack of fleshing out, you know, direct fleshing out as we're wont to see in current fiction, were so fleshed out by the interactions, even Lady Anne in her reticence that it makes them into real-life, almost human-seeming pieces of fiction. As you would know if you had uh, heard previous episodes of this podcast, it's not unusual for me to be lost for words, but for me to be this thoroughly surprised by just the last line of a story is unprecedented and a first for this podcast. I'll definitely be looking forward to reading more of Mr. Hector Hugh Munro's creations in the future as soon as we are done with this 
particular list that we're handling. By the way, if you didn't know, we're doing the best of 19th century short story writers in our podcast this year or this season. So yeah, Saki definitely earned a spot there, even without that last line. But that last line just cemented it. That was my opinion. What did you think about it? Liked it? Loved it? Hated it? Although that could be really hard with this one. Whatever your thoughts may be, I'd love to hear them. And the easiest way, as always, is to use the link in the description to send me a voice note. I'll even add your thoughts to the next episode. Sounds fun, right? If you just wanna type it out by hearing my voice enunciated, it's anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm slash folksy, F-O-L-K-S-Y slash message, M-E-S-S-A-G-E. Musical credits go to our friend Broad Riddiman. If you're looking for quality lo-fi chill vibes, well, he's one of the premier names on YouTube right now. Check out his music in the link in the description. If you want to read today's tale for yourself, it's available as always on gutenberg.org. That's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G dot O-R-G. And that's all we have for today. Come back next week for some more short, or maybe not so short, story goodness. And also to hear me without my nose this blocked up. Toodles!